move on to our main event. Our speaker this evening comes all the way from Texas to join us. So the weather was a little bit different for him when he left <laughs> as opposed to when he landed here. <laughs> he uh, earned his Master's of History from the University of Texas at Austin. Um, teaches as an adjunct faculty in the History Department at Austin Community College there. And he is, uh, like myself, a public historian. He was the director, uh, curator of collections and the director of the Living History Program at the Admiral Nimitz National Museum of the Pacific War. And now is currently the director of the Texas Military Forces Museum at Camp Mabry, which is the official museum of the Texas National Guard. And uh, he'll be speaking to us this evening on the autumn of 1863. Mr. Jeff Hunt. There we go. The technology is in order. Uh, good evening, everyone. It's a real pleasure to be with you up here in Chicago, a little, little far from home, uh, but it's always worth making trips like this when I get to be in a room with people who share my passion for history and particularly uh, this, this era uh, of, of history. Uh, and tonight I'm going to be talking to you about the third book in a series of books I've been writing on the Civil War in Virginia. From the moment Lee's army retreats across the Potomac on July 13, 14 of 1863 through the end of that year. Uh, the six months that follow uh, Lee's retreat have basically been more or less ignored by historians. Uh, you know, in, in regimental histories, it'll get touched on, and biographies, it'll get it touched on, and, and maybe a specialized volume looking at, you know, weapons or something. Somehow it, it winds up in there. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, uh, this is a period uh, that is ignored. Historians sort of like to hit the fast forward button uh, and get from Lee's retreat over the Potomac to the opening of the Overland Campaign in the Battle of Gettysburg. And most of the attention in the fall of 1863 pivots to the west and goes out where the big battles are happening in Chickamauga and Chattanooga. And it is, it is a weakness of military historians uh, to, to follow the big bloodbaths. And of course, there was no big bloodbath in Virginia. Uh, in the second half of 1863. There was, however, a great deal of maneuvering. There was a great deal of fighting, uh, some of it uh, fairly large scale. There were also a host of vital strategic decisions that were made both in the North and the South uh, that are going to have an enormous impact on the war going forward. And, of course, if you stopped and thought about it for a moment, it's highly unlikely that two of the most important armies uh, in the war, the Army of Northern Virginia Army of the Potomac, would basically sit down and do nothing for half a year. Uh, Gettysburg actually did not hurt them any worse than Chancellorsville hurt them or Fredericksburg hurt them or Antietam hurt them. Uh, and there was fighting uh, in Virginia in uh, December of 1862. So why should there not be uh, continued operations in the second half of 1863? And, and they certainly were. Uh, I came to this, uh, this void. Uh, in Civil War history, uh, quite by accident, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Texas, 
I was having a conversation with my mentor, Dr. George Forge, about the, the importance uh, of the Battle of Gettysburg. And, and one of the things that we agreed upon was that you need know, to sort of judge how important Gettysburg was uh, in at least one way by seeing if the war in Virginia was really different after Gettysburg than it was before Gettysburg. And so I went to find out what happened in Virginia after Gettysburg and before the Overland Campaign, and I couldn't find it. It, it wasn't there. And so if I wanted the answer, I had to do the original research. And after 25 years of original research, I said, well, this is a great story, and this story needs to be told. So I started uh, writing a, a series of books. Uh, these are the three uh, that have been put out by my publisher, Savas Beatty. Uh, at this point, there is a fourth book that I, I'm working on now, typing on the airplane uh, coming up here. Uh, we'll, we'll cover the Mine Run campaign. Uh, so that will officially the series, although I tend to, to backfill a little bit on the cavalry actions of August and September, uh, and, and then do a sort of illustrated version of the book that will include some of the, the color maps that you're going to see uh, this evening. So uh, this evening, we're going to talk about the, the Rappahannock Station campaign. This is actually the first offensive campaign undertaken by the Army of the Potomac uh, since Gettysburg. Uh, it's a fairly brief campaign. Uh, but it is the, the sort of bridge between the Bristol Station campaign that takes place in October and the Mine Run campaign that's going to start uh, at the end of November. So to sort of set the stage, uh, after Lee retreats across the Potomac, he falls back into the lower Shenandoah Valley, which is, of course, the northern end of the Shenandoah Valley. A few days later, Meade slips into the Loudoun Valley uh, and uh, places himself on Lee's strategic flank with the Blue Ridge Mountains and the flooded Shenandoah River between them. For the next two days, uh, the, uh, the two generals engage in sort of a chess match with very little in the way of intelligence about the other because of the mountains uh, and the flooded river. Uh, Meade trying to uh, trap Meade in the Shenandoah uh, so that he could attempt to destroy him on the south bank of the Potomac in the way that he had failed to destroy him on the north bank. Lee, of course, wants to get through the mountain passes and back into uh, central Virginia, uh, and he manages to do that. He manages to do that. Uh, and the Federal Army uh, follows, but is brought up short on the upper Rappahannock River uh, by President Lincoln and General Halleck, uh, who tell him they, they want him to suspend his pursuit of Lee uh, that had begun at Gettysburg uh, for a couple of reasons. Well, the most immediate is that there are no reinforcements to send to the Army of the Potomac. Uh, Halleck says, we're stretched thin. We've got no troops to give you. If you continue to pursue Lee and you get into a great big casualty-inducing battle, we, we can't replace those losses. So you need to stop on the upper right panic. The other reason, of course, was the draft riots in the north. Uh, we're going to compel uh, Lincoln uh, to pull 9,200 troops away from the Army of the Potomac and send them north uh, to cow the draft protesters so that the uh, conscription act uh, could resume. And so for six weeks, the Army of the Potomac is going to set on the, uh, the uh, upper reaches of the Rappahannock River. Lee's army is uh, going to pull back, uh, his infantry at least, is going to pull back behind uh, the Rapidan, which is here, uh, and he's going to leave Stewart's cavalry to occupy Culpeper County as a buffer between him and the Federals. And uh, although there's a lot of cavalry fighting during this period, the infantry uh, is basically able to recover from Gettysburg, and you know, this usually surprises a lot of people, but by the 1st of September, 1863, both the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac are as strong as they were on July 1st of 1863. 
Meade's got about 88,000 men. Lee's got about 73,000 men. So it didn't take long for the armies to recover from the big battle in Pennsylvania. Uh, Lee was very anxious to resume the offensive against Meade. He was looking for an opportunity. Uh, he was, uh, he was uh, brought up short by logistical problems. Uh, and while he's trying to amass the resources that would allow him to undertake an offensive, uh, the Confederates are getting trouble uh, out in Tennessee with the federal threat to Knoxville and Chattanooga. Uh, and Meade and Davis meet at the end of August to try and figure out how to deal with that. Uh, it's very similar to the meeting they had in May of 1863, only then the threat point was Chattanooga. Uh, and, and the same two possibilities, we can send troops from Lee's army to reinforce the West, or Lee can undertake an offensive trying to beat the Army of, North, uh, army of the Potomac, drive it back uh, into Washington to force the Federals to pull Western troops east to defend their capital. And just as it happened in the spring of 1863, the fall of 1863, Lee said we should go on offensive in Virginia. After all, I'm very close to Meade's strength, uh, so there's a wonderful opportunity here. And Davis agreed with him, gave him permission to undertake an offensive. But just as Lee started to make his preparations, Knoxville and Chattanooga fall to the Federals, and that forces the Confederates to pull Longstreet's Corps away from the Army of Northern Virginia and two of his divisions had to reinforce Bragg. At that point, uh, Halleck and Lincoln are hearing rumors that the Confederates are concentrating with the Rosecrans, and so Halleck tells me to go into Culpeper County and see if those rumors are true. So he sends his cavalry across the Rappahannock in mid-September. That leads to the Battle of Culpeper Courthouse, one of the bigger cavalry actions of the war. Stewart's cavalry is driven back behind the Rapidan, joins Lee's infantry, and Meade finds out that Longtree isn't being gone. Uh, and then he asks the Lincoln administration, what do you want me to do? You've told me to stop on the upper Rappahannock. You have changed those orders. Do you want me to go ahead and advance toward the Rapidan? And Lincoln and Halleck do not give Meade a straight answer. Uh, Halleck says, well, don't do anything rash. Don't, don't have a big battle, but you should maybe try it push Lee back or cut off part of his army or something like that. And Lincoln is even more obtuse. He says, well, I don't know enough particulars. He's always saying this. I don't know enough to really give you an order, but let me suggest uh, that uh, you, you move forward and see what Lee does and uh, turn it into a real offensive uh, if the opportunity uh, presents. And Lee doesn't like that. That's, that's way too uh, vague for him. Uh, he had specific orders to stop, and he wants specific orders to go forward. And he writes his wife, Margaret, who's a very close confidant uh, of his, about his frustrations. Uh, and he tells her, you know, no doubt Lincoln and Halleck would be delighted if I were to fight a battle and win it. Uh, but what they really want to make sure happens is that if there's defeat, their fingerprints aren't on it. They, they are setting me up to be the scapegoat in case there's a disaster. This is what they've done to all of my predecessors. Uh, and I, I'm not going to play that game. Nonetheless, General Meade is a very good officer. He's highly competent. Uh, and so he takes his infantry over the river as far as Culpeper Courthouse on the hope that a weakened Lee, whose strength has now dropped to 55,000 men, might pull back closer to Richmond in the face of a Union advance. Uh, Lee, however, uh, is strongly entrenched behind the Rapidan, and he's not going anywhere. And so now Meade's in a quandary. He's occupying 
uh, what is known as the Culpeper V. By the Culpeper V, uh, I've been talking about this angle here. So Culpeper is formed on uh, the the east by the upper Rappahannock, which is running down here. Uh, and uh, the southern part of the county is the Rapidan, which is essentially running from west to east until it joins the upper Rappahannock, and then the Rappahannock River flows down to, to Fredericksburg and on uh, into Chesapeake Bay. So that if you look at the county, uh, it looks like a V laid on its side, with its mouth open toward uh, the foothills to take you to the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, and Culpeper is, for reasons that we'll talk about a little bit more specifically here in a minute, it's a bad place to have an army uh, because there's no good defensive terrain uh, and Meade is in a position where it could be readily outflanked. Uh, the Confederates potentially could get between him and Washington. Uh, he doesn't really want his army to be here, uh, but he can't pull it back now that it's it's come forward. So he sends to the infantry corps to the Rapidan so his cavalry can uh, begin to reconnoiter to the east and the west to see if he can find a way to get around Lee's line uh, on the on the Rapidan. Uh, and that's going to lead to the Battle of Jack Shop at the end of September. Uh, and uh, about the same time, of course, the Battle of Chittamaga breaks out in Tennessee. Longstreet's troops get there in time to help Bragg win a victory, uh, drive the Army of the Cumberland back into Chattanooga. Eventually, Bragg will follow and begin a siege. Uh, and so the now disaster uh, you know, for the Federals in Tennessee. And in the face of that disaster, Secretary of War Stanton, uh, wanted to pull troops, 20 or 30,000 troops away from the Army of the Potomac and send them west to try and help redeem the situation at Chattanooga. And his logic is, me, vastly outnumbers, lead, <clears throat> but he's not going to do anything. He's not going to attack. We, we don't need that many men to defend Washington. That strength is wasted in Virginia. Uh, Lincoln and Halleck aren't so sure. They see an opportunity here with Lee Wheat to maybe accomplish something decisive in Virginia. Hey, the, the odds are better now than they've ever been before, uh, but Halleck's pretty persuasive. And when Halleck uh, asked me, do you have any definitive plans to undertake an offensive? Meade says, well, I'm still digesting the reconnaissance that we just conducted uh, uh, in Madison County, and I intend to do something, but I have no definitive plans. And for Lincoln, that's not good enough. Uh, intentions don't matter. I want you to be able to move tomorrow. And if you're not going to do that, then I'm taking troops away from you. So the 11th and 12th Corps are pulled out of the Army of the Potomac, 13,600 men, and they are sent west. Oddly enough, this doesn't impact me strength at all because just as these troops are leaving, the 9,200 men sent north to enforce the draft return. So he stays at somewhere around 88,000 men. Uh, but now Lee is at 55,000, so it's a pretty good gap uh, between the, the two armies. Having sent these two corps west, however, Meade believes that he has now been put on the defensive, that he lacks the strength to assail Lee's Rapidan line. He knows his army is bigger, but as far as he's concerned, it's not bigger in the part that counts, and that's infantry. He's got way more artillery than Lee. He's got way more cavalry than Lee. But if the rebels are going to stand and fight on the defensive and behind entrenchments, I need two to three one odds in infantry to overcome the Confederates. And I don't have it. I've got about 1.5, 1.6 to one. And so Meade surrenders the initiative to Lee. Lee knows he's outnumbered, but he doesn't care. Two federal corps of West Virginia, there's an opportunity. And so at the beginning of October of 1863, Lee undertakes an offensive. 
that becomes known as the Bristow Station Campaign, and he outflanks Meade twice, drives him back to the defenses of Centerville and behind Bull Run. Uh, the major action of that campaign is a rear guard fight at Bristow Station, uh, where A.B. Hill comes off second best. Uh, but nonetheless, the Federals have retreated some uh, 40 miles, uh, almost to the gates of Washington, D.C. Uh, and although Meade's troops are very impressed, that their new general has not fallen into the same trap that had ensnared John Pope uh, in August of 1862, basically on the same ground. Uh, Lincoln and Halleck and Stanton in the Northern Press are not, not happy. Uh, they think that Meade should have stood and fought in Culpeper instead of run away. When, when the Confederates come over onto the offensive, they're leaving their entrenchments behind. They're, they're solving your problem for you. Uh, but we believe that fight, and, and we felt the same way. Culpepper's a rock place to make a defensive stand, uh, and he he refused to acknowledge that he'd been retreating. He said, I was maneuvering to find a place to give that, uh, which is awfully McClellan-esque uh, as far as the administration uh, is concerned. Uh, so Lee has driven the Federals back to Centerville. He would have liked to have hovered close to the Potomac and pin the Federals against their capital. But winter's coming on. Uh, Northern Virginia, after two years of war, is a barren wasteland. He can't live off the countryside. There's no way that Richmond's creaky logistical system is going to be able to supply his army this far north. And so he decides that the only thing he can do is to pull back. Pull back, not all the way to the Rapidine. He doesn't want to give up all of the territory that he's just won back. But he's only going to pull back to the upper Rappahannock. And as his troops retreat, unpursued by the Federals, they destroy the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. And that railroad is incredibly important because uh, it runs uh, from Alexandria and the Potomac southwestward to uh, Culpeper Courthouse, and then it turns south and goes down to Orange Courthouse and from there on to Gordonsville, where it makes connection with the Virginia Central Railroad, which links the Shenandoah Valley the Richmond Fredericksburg and Potomac Railroad, which then carries the valley supplies down to those two Confederate cities. Uh, without the Orange and Alexandria, he cannot feed his army. He can't feed his animals. He can't feed his soldiers. He can't get supplies and munitions. And so as Lee's troops retreat, they obliterate the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. And I choose that word deliberately. They don't destroy it. They obliterate it. They pull up all the rails, set them on fire, lay the track on, on top of them, uh, let the tracks uh, warp. This is actually a picture of the damage that these troops had done uh, to the railroad in October of 1863. They destroy every bridge. They destroy every culvert. They even chop down the telegraph poles running alongside the rails and burn every station house. And federal troops who have been hardened by two and a half years of war, uh, when they see what the Confederates have done, uh, to a man remark at how thorough the devastation was. That they had never seen anything destroyed uh, to the extent that the rebels had destroyed the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. And if the Federals were slow and, and the weather was bad, this might have forestalled me from undertaking an offensive before winter weather sets in and makes campaigning impossible. Uh, the Yankees cannot advance very far south without the railroad. So if Meade wants to pursue Meade, or rather if Meade wants to pursue Lee to the upper Rappahannock, he's got to build the railroad. Uh, he's got to completely rebuild the railroad. And he can't move faster than the work crews can rebuild the railroad. Uh, 
Uh, and maybe that'll take three weeks, maybe three and a half. Uh, in fact, the federal we're going to do it about two and a half weeks. Uh, but uh, Lee knew that in all probability, we would get this done in time to be able to launch a fall campaign. And so by the end of October of 1863, repairs on the railroad have allowed the Army of the Potomac to advance to Warrington and Warrington Junction, which are linked by a spur of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. So here's the federal infantry. The Confederates are here on the northern edges of Culpeper County behind the upper Rappahannock River. And essentially, this is exactly the same spot that the two armies had come to rest at at the end of the Gettysburg Campaign. Uh, so here you are at the end of October, and you're basically where you were at the end of July uh, of 1863. Lee is inside the Culpeper V-neck. And so let's talk about why this is such a bad position. One of the difficulties with this part of Virginia is that Culpeper County uh, is beautiful if you've ever been there. It's gorgeous. But it has no good defensive terrain inside of it. There's no spot in Culpeper where you can anchor both the left and the right flank of a battle line uh, so that they're secure uh, without the enemy having the ability to turn it. And if he turns it uh, to the south of you, then get behind you and the river to your rear. Culpeper County is also not wide. If you travel the length of the Orange and Alexandria from where it crosses the upper Rappahannock at a place called Rappahannock Station, and where it crosses the Rapidan, at Rapidan Station, that's only 23 miles, 23 miles. And, of course, the closer that you get to the junction of the two rivers, uh, then the narrower it gets. And so if you are fighting a battle inside the Culpeper V, uh, where you have no good defensive terrain and you're beaten and you're forced to retreat, you're not going to go very far before you've got to cross a, a significant river. Now, these rivers are probably only about 30 yards wide. Uh, they're about four and a half, five foot deep in most instances. And there are lots of fords along all of these rivers. Uh, but these rivers can flood very quickly. It's called the Rapidan for a reason, because it could rapidly flood if there was any kind of even modest rain upstream. And so fords are natural funnels for armies. They slow the retreat down. Uh, and if there was a rain, those fords disappear completely. And so if you're required to retreat over one of these rivers, the enemy has a chance to catch up with you and maul you before you can escape uh, to the other side. Uh, and so this is not very good terrain. Uh, another difficulty is that if you're in Culpeper County, you're kind of in a bowl. The ground on the south bank of the Rapidan is higher than the ground inside Culpeper, and the ground on the north bank of the Rappahannock is higher than inside Culpeper. And that means that the enemy can move on the other side of that river out of your sight. And he can shift to the left, he can shift to the right, and you probably wouldn't know he was doing it until he suddenly appears someplace that you don't want him to be. And this is why Lee had decided not to keep his infantry there in August, and it's why Lee had pulled back uh, from the Culpeper V in October, but now Lee's decided that this is where he's going to make his stand. And in order to do that, he has to be able to negate the difficulties that come with staying inside the Culpeper V. And he comes to that conclusion for some pretty good reasons. So if we assume that the Federals get their railroad rebuilt and in time to launch a fall campaign, 
we have two basic defensive options. Okay? Salt pepper is exactly halfway between Washington and Richmond. There's a key square on the chessboard uh, of Northern Virginia. And to defend it, Lee could do two things. He could take his army once again below the Rapidan and spread it out to cover as many of those fords as he possibly could with Orange Courthouse being his supply base. But even if he spreads his army out to the maximum that's viable, given his strength, he can't cover all of the fords. The fords that he defends are high ground. He's dug in. No frontal attack is going to breach those positions, but the Federals could move to his left or they could move to his right. And Lee understands that a move to the right is the one that's most dangerous because if Meade were to try and cross to the west, he's, he's going away from Richmond. He would have to let go of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad and rely on wagon trains to supply his army. That's going to make everything much more difficult, make the Army of the Potomac vulnerable to a counterstroke. It's not the way that we need is going to play this game. So what he would probably do is to cross the river beyond Lee's flank at Germana or Eli's or Culpeper Mine 4. And Lee cannot put infantry that far to the east. He can have cavalry patrols, but that's it, which means the Federals would get across the river without any difficulty. And once they're across the river, they'll enter the wilderness, but if they march through it very quickly, they could get south of Lee between him and Richmond. And the only way that Lee could prevent that from happening is either to abandon the Rapidan, race south to Spotsylvania Courthouse, and take up a new blocking position, or he could move very quickly uh, along the Orange Turnpike and the Orange Plank Road and try and hit the enemy's columns as they're trying to get through the wilderness. And if that all looks very familiar to you, that's basically what's going to happen in May of 1864, isn't it? But Lee does not like this gambit because, for one thing, it relies on him being able to react very quickly. If the Federals steal even a half a day's march on it, they might get south of his army before he can move east to strike the Federal columns. In other words, this puts Lee in a completely reactive stance. And Lee doesn't like being in a reactive stance. He'll do that if he has to. But if he stays in Culpeper County, then there are some advantages. First off, Culpeper might be horrible defensive terrain. If you're a Confederate army that wants to launch an offensive into the north, it is the best jumping off position you could possibly have. Because from there, it's very easy to march west and go into the Loudoun Valley or go into the Shenandoah Valley. This is the route that the A and B had followed for the Antietam campaign, and it's the route that it followed for the Gettysburg campaign. So if Lee even imagines he might be able to undertake an offensive at some point, Culpeper is a good place to be. And from Culpeper, he's sort of in a central position. So if Meade were to try and go west and let go of the ONA and swing down toward Madison County, Lee from Culpeper could intercept him very quickly before he got to the Rapidan, and certainly before he could threaten Gordonsville, which is 60 miles away from Warrenton. So from Culpeper, Lee can stop that advance, but what if Meade decides to siddle to the southeast toward Fredericksburg to do what Burnside had done in November of 1862? 
And by the way, with the Army of Northern Virginia and Culpeper and the Federals around Warrington, the armies are in exactly the same place they were in November of 1862. Okay? So that this is none of this is new to anybody. The armies and the generals have been here before. This would be a dangerous move. Burnside almost pulled it off, didn't he? If those pontoon princes had showed up on time, he would have gotten into Fredericksburg and grabbed the high ground south of the city before Lee could uh, counteract the move. Lee doesn't want to replay that, that game again because the second time around, he's apt to lose it. So his answer is to put a bridgehead on the north bank of the Rappahannock right next to Rappahannock Station, where there's high ground that is defensible, but not so large as it would require a, a big commitment of troops in, in order to defend it. And if he has a bridgehead here at Rappahannock Station, he has a launching pad to strike north into the federal rear if the Yankees try and go to Fredericksburg. He could bust out of that bridgehead, get astride the origin of Alexandria, Put his army in between me and Washington and forced me to turn around and try and shove him out of the way in order to reestablish a line of supply and get back to his capital. So the Confederate fortifications at Rappahannock Station, that bridgehead right there, is the key to Lee's defensive strategy. And he understands that Meade will understand that. That Meade will look at this map, he'll see exactly the same things that Lee sees. And that means that the only way that Meade could deal with this Confederate position would be to divide his army. So to send enough troops against Rappahannock Station to seal it off or maybe try to attack it and overwhelm it, and Lee's counting on his fortifications there to keep that from happening. And with half the Union army here, the only way that the Federals are going to get at Rappahannock Station is to send the other half down at Kelly's Ford which is about six miles to the southeast from Rappahannock Station, and a spot where the high ground on the north bank, or literally in this case the east bank, is so dominant that there's no way the Confederates could prevent the Federals from crossing it. The Federals want to get across the river at Kelly's Ford. All the Confederates can do is irritate them. The Yankees are going to get across the river there, but as far as Lee's concerned, that works to his favor, because what he wants to do is use his fortifications at Rappahannock Station to hold half the federal army in its place, and then he's going to let the other half cross into the Culpeper Bee, get just a couple of miles away from the river, and then while he holds whatever Yankees are in front of Rappahannock Station in place with maybe a couple of brigades, he can throw the entirety of the Army of Northern Virginia against whatever portion of Meade's army is crossing Kelly's Ford, and he can destroy it, shove it back against the Rapidan and Maul. So basically, what Lee's set up here is a offensive defense. Technically, he's on the defensive, but he has concocted a scheme that will, <coughs> excuse me, allow him to undertake an offensive action. And as long as Rappahannock Station can freeze a good chunk of the Union Army in place, this plan has enormous possibilities. Meade is looking at the same map. And he sees exactly the same thing. He could move to his right and go into Madison County, but that makes him let go of the ONA. He could easily intercept me. Don't want to do that. I could attack the Confederate fortifications along the river 
but with Lee's bridge and Rappahannock Station, I would have to divide my army and send half of it into a trap and do exactly what Robert E. Lee wants me to do, and I'm not inclined to do that. So what does Meade want to do? He wants to do what Burnside did. He wants to rapidly run down to Fredericksburg, cross the river, get the high ground south of town, and do it before Lee can intervene. And he says, yes, I have to move the secrecy. Yes, I have to do it quickly, but I think I can do that. And the best thing about this is not that it allows me to avoid the Confederate fortifications of Rappahannock Station and Lee's little clever ploy. It will allow me to abandon the Orange and Alexandria Railroad as an axis of advance. Meade has never liked relying on the ONA, not because its single-track line can't feed his army. It can. The problem with the ONA is it leads to nowhere that the Union Army wants to go. It goes southwest from Washington. It goes in the opposite direction from Richmond. And that means that if you advance down the ONA, you're threatening no particular point. Lee has to defend until you get all the way to Gordonsville. And so Lee could just back up and back up and back up in front of me until he finds the perfect defensive position, squats and digs in on it, and then I have to assail him in a fortified line. But worse than that, the entire ONA runs through Mosby's Confederates. And to keep Confederate raiders and guerrillas from wrecking this railroad line with frequency and therefore endangering my ability to feed my army, I've got to place infantry along the entire length of that line to defend it. And right now, even while I'm at Warrington, I'm spending 5,000 good troops defending the railroad. And if I keep pushing down this railroad and Lee backs up and sucks me even deeper along the ONA, my supply line gets longer and longer and longer, and I have to spool out more and more and more infantry to defend it. And it might be like spending 10 or 15,000 men to guard the ONA by the time Lee turns to fight. And at that point, the Army of Northern Virginia actually might be bigger than the Army of the Potomac in terms of men it can put onto the battlefield. And if I'm attacking entrenchments, I don't even begin to have the odds I need now. What's going to happen if I'm even weaker? And should I win a battle? It will be a great cost. And will I destroy the Army of Northern Virginia? Meade says, you're not going to destroy any army in this war in a single battle. So Lee's going to retreat closer to Richmond. His supply line will get shorter. He'll find another line to fortify that will be just as tough to overcome. And my supply line will get longer, and I'll spend more troops to defend it. And in the next battle, I'll be weaker yet. And this is all very problematic at a time when he is desperately worried that the North is running out of men. The North is running out of men. Volunteering. That's over. In the face of horrible casualty figures and giant death tolls from disease and a war that seems like it's never going to end, nobody's volunteering anymore. And so the North has followed the Confederates and adopted conscription. But we know how popular that is. I just sent 9,200 men North to enable the conscription officers to do their work at the point of the bayonet. And Meade doesn't think this draft thing is going to work. He, he's really worried that it will not bring in the numbers that are necessary. But even more than that, the men who are coming in under the draft are all but worthless as far as he's concerned. A lot of the draftees are deserting before they even get to the Army. 
And then you've got the bounty jumpers. These guys are enlisting for the enlistment bonus, and then they desert as quickly as they can to go repeat the process in a different place under an assumed name. What good does it do to put men in the army who are not going to fight with the valor and the vigor necessary to win victory? Their mouths to feed a little utility on the battlefield. The two-year enlistments expired, and almost all of those guys went home. In April and May, the three-year enlistments were going to expire. And why shouldn't we assume those guys are going to go? Fighting for the sake of fighting is pointless. You have to gain something out of the casualties that are going to come out of the big battle. And Meade looks at history, and he says, every battle that we fought in Virginia has been bloodier than the battles that preceded <laughs> And the Army of the Potomac has been smaller in each of those than it was in the battles that preceded. And so it doesn't make sense to fight for ground that gains us nothing. If I get to Fredericksburg, we abandon the ONA, then the supply line becomes a key landing on the Potomac. And there's only 15 miles of railroad between it and Fredericksburg. And I won't spend 5,000 troops to defend that. I'll be on a straight line to Richmond. Lee will have to pull back to the north of the South. And I'm in a better position for a spring campaign in 1864. And the military logic here is impeccable. You cannot argue against what Meade is saying. But he had said it in August, and Lincoln and Halleck said no. And he had said it in September, and Lincoln and Halleck had said no. They told me, your job is to go and find and fight the Army of Northern Virginia and grind it into dust wherever it is. And it's not going to be any easier to do that somewhere around Fredericksburg than it is somewhere down the ONA. If you move from the ONA to a key landing, you're just transferring your difficulties from one place to another, not making anything really easier. And besides that, going back to Fredericksburg, seems to make Richmond the objective point. And let us remind you what we've been saying since we fired McClellan, Lee's army and not Richmond is your objective point. Oh, and by the way, taking the army of the Potomac back to the scene of its worst disaster, <laughs> right before we have the October and November congressional elections, that's a non-starter, okay? That's a non-starter. We're not doing that. And me... Warned them, he said, okay, you're, you're consigning me to Culpeper County, and Lee can easily outflank me, and when he does, I'm going to have to pull back to the gates of Washington, and lo and behold, what happens in early October? Exactly what Meade said. So now, here we are at the beginning of November, and Meade believes he's been vindicated, and now Lincoln and Halleck must see his logic. And it's not that they don't. The problem is that when Meade talks about, you know, Securing lines of supply, communication, all that. It's not the logic that bothers them, it's the, the, the voice that they're hearing when he talks is that of George McClellan, who always said those things as ways to avoid fighting. And after failing to destroy Lee at Williamsport and failing to trap them in the Shenandoah Valley, and then retreating away from him instead of fighting in October, Lincoln and Halleck and Stanton are really worried that they've got another McClellan. Technically competent, but no real fighting spirit, no killer instinct. And they may have forgiven him his failure to destroy Lee when he was trapped against a flooded Potomac, but they haven't forgotten it and they never will. And everything that general says and everything he proposes, they see and hear through the filter of what happened in the middle of July. 
Nonetheless, Meade believes that this time they can't deny him what he wants. And so he, he begins to make the preparations for this rapid shift toward Fredericksburg, and he dutifully sends word to Halleck saying, this is the move I'm going to make, and the only thing I need from you is a very prompt notice if you are going to veto this plan yet again. And what happens? Halleck gives the very prompt notice that he is vetoing this plan again. Lincoln and Halleck want nothing to be said. No in August. We said no in September. Why do you think we're suddenly going to say yes at the beginning of November? And this infuriates me. And he writes uh, an angry letter to his wife. My plan is disapproved. His capitalization. My plan is disapproved. These guys have half the time told me, you must do X, and you must do Y, and you must do Z. And the other half of the time, they said, figure it out. Come up with something. He said, that's not fair to dictate to me at one time and then to tell me I'm on my own for another. And now I tell them what I think is the best move. I lay out the logic, which is impeccable, and they say no. They say no. And he wishes he'd never become commander of the Army of the Potomac. He's with frequency said, if you're not happy with me, replace me. But you can't fire the guy who won the Battle of Gettysburg, especially if he hasn't suffered the defeat. And as Lincoln said, who's better than me? Who, who's better than me than the Army of the Potomac? And so you might wonder, is George Lee going to say, well, if I can't carry out the plan I want, then I'm just going to throw up my hands and then with excuses, do nothing, we'll go into winter quarters. No, George Meade is a much, much better man than that. He's a much better general than that. So if he can't execute his preferred plan, he'll go to the backup plan, which is to do exactly what Robert E. Lee wants him to do. And to do it knowing is going to do exactly what Robert E. Lee is wanting him to do. So he divides his army into two wings, a right wing under the command of Major General John Sedgwick, the ranking Major General in the army. In fact, his commission predates meets by five months. He'll get the 5th and the 6th Corps. The 6th Corps, of course, is his own, 26,000 men. The left wing, Major General William F. French, who has spent most of the war as a division commander in the second corps, but is now in charge of the third corps, having replaced Sickles after he was wounded at Gettysburg. He'll have the first, second, and third corps, 29,000 men. The army will be in two wings. Lee will put its headquarters between them. And the plan, well, the plan is what Lee wants him to do. Sedgwick's wing will come down from Warrington, and it will head toward Rappahannock Station. And French's wing will come down to cross the river at Kelly's Ford. And the only way that Meade figures that he can negate what Lee's going to do is to try and get both wings over the river at the same time. So Sedgwick's orders are going to be to seal off the Rappahannock Station bridgehead with ample force to prevent a Confederate counterattack from erupting out of it. But if you can, you need to flatten, destroy it, and get across the river. Now, Meade says, I'm not sure you can. I'm not sure those breastworks are assailable. But if you can, that's what you need to do. And obviously, if you can get across the river at an station, and we know that French can get across Kelly's Ford, we can link the two wings of the Army up at Brandy Station and be ready to fight a battle against the United Army of Northern Virginia. If you can't get across, then I'm going to have to send French up 
the south bank of the river to attack Rappahannock Station in the rear. Of course, the great danger is that Lee concentrates the Army of Northern Virginia to try and maul French before that can happen. And so Meade figures if Sedgwick hasn't crushed Rappahannock Station by nightfall on November 7th, which is the day we're going to kick off, then overnight I'm going to have to pull the entire 5th Corps and half of the 6th Corps over to Kelly's Ford to reinforce French before the inevitable Confederate counterattack happens. This is not the plan that Meade wants to execute. And he writes a letter to his wife, and I know that that's, that's way too small for you to read, but he's apologizing for not writing with the frequency that he does. And basically he says, I have been so worried and anxious, so distressed over my situation, I just haven't felt like writing. In fact, I try not to write to anybody. This is, I've been treated unfairly by the administration. The thing I want to do, the thing I ought to do, the thing I know will work, I've been told no, so now I'm going to have to attack the enemy and try and cross a fortified river. And I've been a soldier long enough to know that this is one of the hardest things that an army can attempt to do, and I am not overly sanguine of success. And if this doesn't work, I have no earthly idea what I try next. I'm at a loss. And then he writes her, I wish I had never accepted command of the army. I wish I had said absolutely and firmly no back at the end of June when Lincoln ordered me to the post. Because I thought I had an idea of what this job was like, and it is so far worse than I ever imagined. And again, a guy who writes a letter like this, you might say, would go into the next campaign convinced he's already going to be beaten, go into it with such half-hearted effort that he guarantees that he's going to be beaten. But it means not like that. Meade is a dutiful, intelligent, competent soldier. And so he throws his all into plan number two. He's going to give it everything he's got. And if it doesn't work, he tells Margaret, I will as cheerfully accept being fired for the command of the Army of the Potomac as I accepted being put in charge of the Army of the Potomac. And at least that means I'll get to come home and see you and the kids. Federals launched their move on November 7th of 1863. They actually managed to get the jump on the Confederates. There's no Confederate cavalry other than a few vedettes on the north bank of the Rappahannock. There are a couple of vedettes uh, in front of Rappahannock Station. There's no cavalry at Kelly's Ford. There's just a Confederate infantry skirmish line uh, a few hundred yards on on the opposite shore. Uh, Why is there no Confederate cavalry? Because it's back around Culpeper Courthouse where it is easier to distribute a little bit of grain that's coming up from Richmond to feed half-starved horses. Ewell's entire artillery, except for three batteries, is even further south around Cedar Mountain in order to facilitate foraging the animals and getting grain when it comes up from Richmond. So severe logistical difficulty means that Lee's infantry is holding this line with very little in the way of cavalry support. Also, one of Lee's best scouts had been captured by the Federals on November 1st. And so he gets no warning that the Federals are on the move. So Meade actually secures surprise here. And he spends half a day getting his army into places that the Federals don't know they're coming until the Yankees start to show up. 
And the first place they show up is at Kelly's Ford, which is across the river from Kelly'sville. That's a picture of it in the aftermath of the fighting that's going to take place on, on this day. It used to be the largest manufacturing center in Culpeper. Uh, most of those industries, of course, are long gone. Uh, and this, of course, is a part of the river that the Confederates know that they cannot hold because there's all this high ground on the north bank, and that's incredibly dominant terrain. The Federals get guns up there. They're looking down at everything on the other side of the river uh, like fish in a barrel. The Confederates have some fortifications there, and uh, they're good for fitting off a raid or minor harassment, but against a major attack, they're almost worthless. Defending this sector is Ramsher's Brigade of Rhodes Division of Duels Corps, but Ramsher's gone home to get married. And so uh, Colonel William Cox, who usually has the 2nd North Carolina, is in charge of the brigade. His regiment, now under the command of Lieutenant Colonel William Stallings, uh, is deployed mainly at Kelly's Ford. He's got seven companies there, about 225 men. He's got another company up here at Wheatley's Ford, and then two other companies further uh, downstream at another Ford. Immediately to his rear is a 700-yard plane that leads to high ground uh, on which is Camp 30th North Carolina, Lieutenant Colonel William Sillers, 500 men, and the Havana Artillery under Captain John Massey a six-gun Confederate battery, which is somewhat unusual. Their job is delay. Delay. By time. A couple of hours to allow Rhodes' division to go in the line of battle and Edward Johnson's division to come up and extend that line of battle because the Confederates are anticipating this. They are wanting this. They've already worked out the contingency. When federal soldiers show up at Kelly's Ford, we do A, B, and C. And we just need a little time. So there's not supposed to be an extended fight. Buy us an hour or two is all that we got, all that we need, and don't waste a lot of men getting it done. And that's for cycle because the Federals play this game exactly the way they should. Alfred Wode is traveling with French's wing. He's there to draw the battle. And so here is the Federal artillery up on that high ground. And down there is Kelly's Ford and Kelly'sville. You can see how dominant, and there's that 700 yards of open ground to the nearest reinforcements. So once these Federal guns get up here, it's almost game over. The Federal Infantry advances on Kelly's Ford with the first U.S. sharpshooters out in front. But when they get to the Ford proper, the 2nd North Carolina, from its entrenchments, puts such a fire on them that it drives them to ground and pins them down. The Federals deploy a third battery to try and support uh, the assault on the Ford. And at that point, the Havana artillery comes out, assumes position in a pre-dug uh, earthwork, and opens fire on the Yankee artillery. But then three federal batteries turned against them, three rifle batteries against six smoothbores, and very quickly Captain Massey has to give up the fight and withdraw. Otherwise, his, his battery is going to be wrecked. Lieutenant Colonel Sillers takes the 30th North Carolina and does something incredibly gallant, but also very foolish. He tries to reinforce the four. He doesn't have any orders to do that. Uh, and Colonel Cox is not there to give the orders because he rides out onto the field to see what's going on and is immediately hit by Yankee artillery fire. His face is lacerated, his shoulders bruised, he's out of action. So command and control goes all to pieces, 
And Sillers says, I've got to help Stalling to perform. So he tries to take his 500 men in line of battle across 700 yards of broken terrain in the face of Union artillery fire at the double quick. And the terrain breaks up the formation. They run into a couple of scout fences that break up the formation. And then there's all that Yankee artillery fire that breaks up the formation. And by the time they get into Kellysville, they're completely demoralized. Most of the men tumble into cellars or hide in buildings. They're of so little value that Stallings goes to cellars and says, you are contributing nothing except casualties to my defense. Get out of here. And Sillers says, I think you're right. <laughs> and he orders a retreat, but about 180 of his men want nothing to do with retracing their run across that open ground, and they refuse to budge. For the Federals, General David Burney, who's in command of the assault troops, is now tired of this. It's taken too long. He goes to Lieutenant Colonel Casper Tripp, who's in charge of the first U.S. sharpshooters, and says, you are to attack across the ford and drive these rebels away. Tripp is an incredibly competent soldier. He's really the brains behind the whole brigade sharpshooter thing. Uh, and he looks at the Confederate entrenchments on the other side of Kelly's Ford and says, oh, that's not an attack. That's a suicide mission. And I'm not going to do it that way. So he sends four companies upstream with orders to cross the Ford at a point that he hopes is not going to be defended. And then they're supposed to swing around and hit the flank of the Confederate entrenchments, and when they do that, the rest of the sharpshooters will cross. And it pretty much works. There are Confederates where those four companies intend to cross, but it's a small detachment. They shoot down 10 of the Federals in the river, but the rest get across. The flank is turned, and at that point, the first U.S. sharpshooters charge across the fort. There's Wode again to draw it, and the Federals take the entrenchments in really vicious hand-to-hand combat. With the Ford loss, Stallings pulls back to Kellysville, and he says, well, there's no point in trying to hold the village if I've lost the Ford. And so he orders a retreat back to uh, the woods, and the Federals are across the river at a pretty cheap cost for the Yankees. Seven dead, 35 wounded, 45 Confederates killed, 78 wounded, and 295 missing, almost all of the prisoners, 140 of them from the 30th North Carolina, who refused to flee once the Federals uh, were over the, the river. And uh, Sillers gets killed in skirmishing that evening, so nobody points a finger at him. Uh, but as the report goes, the 30th did not sustain its reputation at Kelly's Ford. French immediately brings up the pontoon trains, begins to lay a bridge. He fords a division over the river. By nightfall, he will have a second division over, a third division ready to cross during the evening. The second corps and the first corps will mass against the river. Three corps, 29,000 Federals ready to walk into the trap. That Barbie Lee has faith, that Meade knows he has faith. And the only way to avoid that trap snapping shut is at Rappahannock Station. Mule's Corps is in charge of the defenses of Rappahannock. Hill's Corps uh, is uh, toward uh, the west of Culpeper. Uh, he's going to be the attacking force once Lee decides which option he's going to take, attack the Federals at Kellysville, or if the Yankees are so foolish to leave nothing of consequence in front of Rappahannock Station, burst out of the bridgehead and get between Meade uh, and Washington. 
Why does rapid annexation matter to me? Because that is where the Orange and Alexandria crosses the river, or at least that's where it used to cross the river. There have been three bouts of combat already at Rappahannock Station. In early 1862, in uh, August of 1862, as part of the Second Manassas Campaign, and now we're going to get uh, the third one. Uh, that's a 500-foot-long bridge, and at this particular point, it doesn't exist. Uh, it's been burned three times already in the war, and it's been rebuilt twice. Uh, Meade had rebuilt it in August of 1863, then he burned it in October of 1863 as it retreated toward the river. The Confederates have not rebuilt it, but if Meade's going to make any sustained advance down the ONA, he needs the bridge, which means he's got to have Rappahannock Station. But this is also where there's high ground on the north bank that he is occupying, and you can kind of see it right there. It's on the west side of the railroad, right there. And here's what it looked like. That's Rappahannock Station itself, but this is from the south bank looking at the bridge in 1862 before it's burned. And notice how flat the ground is there east of the railroad. Those trees, that's a, that's a high wooded ridge. But see how the ground goes up here on the west side of it. So remember what Meade's done. French, with his wing, is across Kelly's Ford, now the 5th and the 6th Corps coming down on Rappahannock Station. The 5th Corps, under Major General George Sykes, who's led the outfit since Meade stepped up to take command of the Army. But since Sedgwick is running the wing, Major General Horatio Wright is in command of the 6th Corps on this particular day. Not a guy with a lot of combat experience. He led a division of the Battle of Secession Bill in the summer of 1862, and since then, he hasn't fought anybody anywhere. He's a relative newcomer to the Army of the Potomac. What's up against, well, as the 26,000 federal troops begin to appear in front of Rappahannock Station, there's a grand total of one brigade, Louisiana Tigers, and 900 rebels and a four gun battery from the Louisiana Guard Artillery. Louisiana Tigers, under the command of Brigadier General Harry Hayes, is an extremely competent officer and not there because he's on court martial duty. So his senior colonel, Davidson Penn of the 7th Louisiana, is in charge. And fortunately, he is as competent as Harry Hayes. And they've got these 900 guys. And they're mostly deployed in front of the entrenchment. So here is the Confederate bridgehead right there. And you've got the 7th and 8th Louisiana about a quarter of a mile in front of the trenches on a ridge. And then you've got the 6th Louisiana about a half a mile in front of the earthworks along a ridge. And they're deployed for observation. So far enough forward to see what the enemy might do. The 5th Louisiana is actually not even on the north bank of the river. It's, uh, it's holding trenches on the south bank, and the only thing that's in the bridgehead is the 9th Louisiana and the four guns of Louisiana Guard Artillery. And so from these advanced positions, Penn sees the first federal troops appear, and then he sees two entire federal corps begin to deploy into line of battle. And he very rapidly sends word back to his division commander, Major General Tubal Early, 
and his corps commander, Richard Duell, and the army commander, Robert E. Lee. Excuse me, there are a whole bunch of Yankees <laughs> who are showing up in front of my position. Please send help. But it's going to take some time for the couriers to get back. It's a five or six mile trip for the couriers to get back. And so Ken knows he's on his own for a while. So he leaves skirmishers on these ridges and he pulls his troops back into the fortifications, brings the 5th Louisiana over, and the only rapid response supports are two batteries that have been kept close to the river uh, who gallop forward and occupy uh, fortifications dug on two hills south of the river overlooking the one pontoon bridge over which the Confederates can cross the stream into and out of the bridgehead. If Sedgwick had not decided to deploy his entire two core force, but had just sent forward one or two brigades, the first one or two that showed up, Ken would have had no choice but to abandon the north bank, abandon the bridgehead, and flee to the south bank. And Sedgwick could have had Rappahannock Station by 1 p.m. at zero cost. The Sedgwick is a cautious fellow who, in my opinion, has an overrated reputation. <laughs> Somebody point to me and tell me anything that John Sedgwick ever did in the war that's really astounding. His men liked him. Need liked him. He was a likable guy. But that squad, he commanded part of Hooker's army in the Chancellorsville campaign. And granted, Fighting Joe didn't do a lot of favors for Sedgwick during that campaign, and there were communications breakdown, but he faced Confederate fortifications to Fredericksburg then, one division. He had two corps, and he dilly-dallied in front of them for most of the campaign and only took them at the last moment. And after that, the Battle of Salem Church. So his experience leading a wing of the Army of the Potomac has not been a happy one. And that's going to incite caution, not aggressiveness and encore performance. And on top of that, Meads told him, I want you to take those earthworks, but I'm not sure you can take those earthworks. They might be too strong to take. So be careful and guard against a Confederate counterattack. And so Sedgwick approaches these Confederate fortifications, which are actually going to seem pretty slight, as though they're the permanent defenses of Richmond. And so he's not going to take any chances. He's going to spend two hours deploying this entire 26,000-man force. And therefore, he throws away the first opportunity of the day. He misses it. This will have an impact, however, because these Louisianans watch 26,000 Federals deploy against them. And they look around and they say, they're 900 of us. <laughs> and we're on the wrong side of the river. And there's nobody who's going to get up here to help us very quickly. And if we have to retreat, there's a single bridge that we have to go under. So this is going to undermine the morale of the Confederate defenders. And that's going to turn out to matter uh, a great deal. But Sedgwick deploys. And having deployed, he now decides at 3 in the afternoon to move forward. Not in a general assault. Not with his entire force. He's going to send skirmishers forward on both sides of the railroad. Backed by a division on each side. On the west side, Brigadier General Albion Howe. On the east side, a division under the command of uh, Major General Joseph Bartlett, uh, who's going to lead his men forward in a column of divisions. And this 
is something that we need to pay attention to. A column of divisions uh, for an infantry regiment means two company fronts with your pairs of companies stacked one behind the other so that basically you've turned your regiment into something of an elongated battering ram. The very efficient way to move large bodies of men over very small spaces very quickly. It's an imposing looking kind of formation. The job of these skirmishers is to seal off the bridgehead. The job of the divisions is to support the skirmishers. And on the east side of the railroad, as soon as the skirmishers get into place, then the division of Bartlett is supposed to pivot around into these woods and just take shelter. On the west side, Howe is supposed to seize the ridge occupied by the Confederate skirmishers so that Union artillery can be planted there and we can try and shell the Confederates out of their fortifications. So the Federal advance begins, the Confederate skirmishers fire, then they pull back, a fighting retreat. The Yankee skirmishers come forward. Uh, the uh, 5th Vermont swings around, makes sure it grabs Beverly Ford, then moves down the riverbank. The Federal skirmishers are going to seal off the bridgehead. Bartlett's division is going to go to cover. Howe's going to take the ridge and then back up into its reverse slope so the Confederate artillery can't hurt him. And Howe, seeing how easily this was done, sends a message to Wright. There aren't very many Confederates in this position. Let me attack. And Wright, still limited combat experience, taking his cues from Sedgwick, says, oh no, I can't let you do that. We can't attack earthworks. You'll be slaughtered. And the Confederate artillery on the South Bank would rip you to pieces before you even got close. And yes, there are a lot of Confederate earthworks on the South Bank of the river, but there's no artillery in any of them. The guns that could rip you apart aren't there. They're about 12 miles away at Cedar Mountain, where their horses can be readily fed. So here's a second missed opportunity for the Federals. For the Confederates, this has bought them incredibly important time. So Early and uh, Lee have ridden forward. They're sitting on this hill where the two reinforcing Confederate guns uh, are, are firing now. Uh, and why is Lee gone here? Because Ewell's handling things at Kelly's Ford. We've got the plan. We know what we're doing at Kelly's Ford. What I need to know is how many Yankees are at your Atlantic Station and what are they going to do? That's the linchpin to everything. And so he's not going to leave that to somebody else. He's going to put his eyes uh, on this. Early's ordered his division forward. Anderson's division of Hill's Corps has been ordered forward. We, the Barretts have time to adjust to what is happening. For the Federals, what are they looking at? One of the interesting things about the Battle of Rappanic Station is that nobody on either side drew a map of this action. There is no map of the official records, no map of the official atlas. No officer drew a map of what was going on here. Fortunately, we don't have to rely on those guys and their negligence because they've been fighting here in August of 1862 in the second Manassas campaign. And Edwin Forbes was there and he drew this picture, uh, which is from the same ridge where Sedgwick's artillery has now gone into place and is firing. And he's looking south at the high ground now occupied by the Confederate bridgehead, right there. Those two hills are where the South Bank Confederate artillery are. That's the Rapidan right there. There's the line of the origin of Alexandria. All these buildings here have been burned by this point of the war. The buildings up here are gone. 
but on this corner of the ridge overlooking a steep bank going down to the railroad is a small fully enclosed confederate fort with two guns here in the middle is an open back redoubt with two guns that line right there is the freeman's ford road which runs all the way to Kellysville to the west. It's kind of sunken right here. It's about 200 yards from the crest of that hill right there. So this is what this looks like to the Federals. What do the Confederate fortifications look like? So this was a great mystery. This is, this is the toughest nut that I had to solve in deciphering this map, especially since there was no official map. But no official map, it turns out, doesn't mean no map. Okay? Two federal soldiers who took part in this action drew maps of it shortly after. One of them was an engineer. And these two maps, which include no scale, and they're slightly different because one of the federals was on the east side of the railroad and the other was on the west side of the railroad, so the perspective is a little bit different. Nonetheless, leave us the Rosetta Stone of the Confederate fortification. So let's let's start with this one right here. So, and I know this is a little little dim, uh, but this is the railroad. There's the burnt bridge right there. Here are those two South Bank Hills that the Confederate artillery is on. Now the railroad is gone, right? The Confederates destroyed the railroad, but as the railroad approached the river, it ran on a very high embankment, like 10 or 12 feet tall to deal with floodwaters. And that embankment is still there. All right, so it's the clear dividing line between the fifth core to the east and the sixth core uh, to the west. Uh, here is the ridge that Sedgwick's putting his artillery on. Okay, here's the ridge that the Confederates are on. And notice that the river makes a curve here, makes a curve here. And so the Confederate fortifications bend back to meet that curve. The river right here is wider and deeper than it typically is because in the 1840s, the Rappahannock Canal Company had built a dam just upstream from the railroad bridge to create, to create a pond to park canal boats in. So the river immediately behind the Confederate position is unfordable. It's wide, and because it's early November, the water is very cold, deadly cold. Okay? The Confederate forts, you see there's one, there's the other, and on the east side of the railroad is another Confederate fort. It runs for about 168 yards, and it bends back, it refuses its flank to conform to a little stream called Tin Pot Run that courses along the north side of these hills. Sedgwick is occupying, goes under the ONA, and then empties into the, uh, the Rappahannock River. Okay. If we look at this other map, this is the one drawn by the engineer who's west of the railroad. We see some of the same features. There's the ridge the Federals are on. Okay. There's Tin Pot Run. This guy doesn't draw the detached work over here. Those are the two south banks. There's the one pontoon bridge, which is just a little bit to the uh, west of the large redoubt, but a couple of very important things here. Notice that the Confederate line zigzags in this map. Now, almost every map that has been drawn of Confederate fortifications, Rappahannock Station, before I wrote this book, shows a nice, smooth semicircle going back to the river. 
which doesn't even make any sense. No military man is going to dig a semicircular line of earthworks because if you do that, you diffuse your fire. So you dig zigzag so you can get crossfire on the attack. Lincoln's Confederates did that. And a drawing by Alfred Woad will confirm that there are zigzags in the Confederate works. But the really revealing thing about this map here is right to the east of this um, of this um, large redoubt here. Okay, and so if you look at this, and I know again it's really hard for you guys to see here, but if you look at this. Pontoon Bridge, and there's a road. Of course there's a road, right? Troops have to be able to exit the earthworks, don't they? To deploy in front of it for observation. But more than that, what's the whole purpose? What's the whole purpose of a bridgehead? To be able to attack out of it, right? So you can't dig a solid wall of earth and block your roads. Because then you can't advance out of the bridgehead. So where the road crosses the Confederate line, there are gaps in the works, two gaps in the works to let roads go through. So it's not a solid front immediately to the east of the large Confederate redoubt. And to defend those gaps, the Confederates have gone about 25, 30 yards in front of them and built small little works blocking the road. So if you've ever had to drive onto a military installation, or a secure facility, you have to zigzag through all those areas. It's the exact same logic, okay? But that means that this is the weakest part of the Confederate line right here. This is the weakest part of that line, uh, and it's vulnerable, okay? The Confederate fortifications are slight. The parapets are not high. The trenches are very narrow. They don't leave the troops in them a lot of room to position. In some places, they've been dug too far back on the reverse slope to effectively fire uh, at distance uh, on the ground in front of you. There's no abatis in front of this. There are no defensive ditches, although there is one natural ditch that runs about 150 yards downhill in front of the uh, the large redoubt. Uh, why, why not all these works? Early complaints. You know, we didn't do all these things we could have done. Again, if you festoon position with abatis and ditches, not, you destroy its utility as a launching pad for an event. Your troops would have to clear all that away to move forward. That would slow everything down. Lee thinks that there's enough done here. Ewell says there's a lot of work that was expended on, the, on these positions. And Lee says the Yankees can't attack with any more troops than I can put into a line, and we should be able to defend this position uh, without any problem. In some ways, this is a very sophisticated position because there are 300 yards of trench uh, between the large and the small redoubt, and this 300 yards of trench uh, is uh, is formed as a stepped trench. So anybody who's used to uh, World War One trenches will understand this. This is sort of a dental pattern trench. So if the enemy gets in it, it can't shoot down the length of it, and also protects against inflating artillery fire. And so the Confederate position and what it really looks like. Now the Federals. We might. Okay. So the Federals, uh, that's what they're looking at. That, that's what's stymieing them. This is what Sedgwick is not too eager. Wright is not too eager. Sykes is not too eager to throw his men against. 
And because they're being cautious and they're going to try and shell the Confederates out of the position, they spend almost two hours trying to shell the Confederates out of the position. Totally ineffective. You have a nice artillery duel, very dramatic, but look good on film, but it doesn't really hurt anybody. Okay? This gives time for Early's division to show up. And the first of his units to arrive is Hope's Brigade, which is not under Hope. Hope in the 21st North Carolina had been sent home to round up deserters. So today it's under the command of Colonel Archibald Godwin, uh, who's a Virginian. He's like six feet six. He's a giant of a god by 1860 standards. He's got uh, about uh, a thousand men coming in. One of those regiments, the 54th North Carolina, is very big, 580 men. That's huge for this time of the war if you're a Confederate. But this regiment wasn't at Gettysburg because it was guarding all the prisoners taken at Winchester in June of 1863. And that's important because the 6th and 57th North Carolina and all of the Louisiana regiments of the evening of July 2nd, 1863, they spawned Cemetery Hill. At dusk, they got up among the federal guns, and they would have won the battle for Robert E. Lee if they had been reinforced. They weren't. They were driven back. But there were two units in the Army of Northern Virginia who understand the possibilities and the dangers of a twilight assault. They're the guys, right? But not the 54th North Carolina. They haven't had that experience. Something to remember. So Hope is uh, Hope's brigade under Godwin is told by Early to reinforce him in the bridgehead, and Penn needs reinforcements because he didn't have enough men to hold his entire line. he got two regiments on his left flank, he's got two regiments on his right flank, the 6th Louisiana is in that detached work east of the railroad, and his center is just a skirmish line. And Lee sees Godwin's men double-clicking across the pontoon bridge under artillery fire, and Lee's a little bit taken aback by that. He's not sure how much force he wants to commit to this essentially bluff on the north bank of the Rappahannock. And Early says, if you want me to recall them, I will. And so Lee says, no, they're going on. Let them go. We've only got about an hour until dark now. And this position needs to seem threatening to the gangs. And this will make it look more threatening. In fact, it looks so threatening that Cedric responds by ordering forward the rest of his force onto the same line that his advanced divisions have taken. So he sees this as the potential beginning of a big Confederate counterattack. And he solidifies his line to withstand it. So an indication that he's thinking as much defensively as he's thinking offensively. The rest of Early's division is going to come up. One brigade is going to be sent down to Norman's Ford, and another is going to be sent uh, up to Freeman's Ford. Uh, but basically now the Confederates who are going to fight this battle are in place, and this is what they look like inside the bridgehead. So you've got the 7th and 5th Louisiana on the left flank, the 54th North Carolina, the 6th North Carolina, the 57th North Carolina in the center. Then over here, the 6th Louisiana in this detached work all by itself, 180 guys. The two guns of Louisiana Guard Artillery in the small fort, which is so small, there's no infantry in it. The 9th Louisiana holding the 300 yards trench connecting the small fort and large redoubt, which has two guns, and holding that redoubt and the place where the line is broken up by the road is the 8th Louisiana. So about 2,100 Confederates in here, facing 26,000 Federals. Okay? So the Federals and the Confederates are engaged in a sharpshooting duel. 
this artillery tool, none of that is budging the rebels at all. So Sedgwick hoped that this would compel the Confederates to retreat. It's not working. The only other option is an infantry assault, and he's not inclined to do that. Wright's not inclined to do it. Sykes isn't inclined to do it. You're going to send men across a quarter or a half a mile of open ground against Confederate fortifications? That, that would be a massive. So in all probability, if it was left to those three major generals, night falls, the Confederate fortifications are still there, and Lee has all of his options. He can lead troops there. He can pull them back. He can concentrate the Army of Northern Virginia to launch a dawn assault on that portion of French's wing that has gotten over the river, and in all likelihood, overwhelming. And we had the Battle of Kelly's Ford or Culpeper Courthouse to lease you know, the scribe pantheon of Dick. <coughs> Still then, the Federals bring up more guns, and it doesn't make any difference. Stalemate. And it would have stayed a stalemate if not for that guy right there, Brigadier General David Rust. He's the hero in this story for the Federals. He's commanding the division because Wright's commanding a corps because Sedgwick's commanding a wing. He usually has a brigade. And Russell, along with Howe, he's a special guy because those two did something that no other federal officers have done in the course of the war. In May of 1863, during the Chancellorsville campaign, they're the guys who charged the stone wall and the earthworks at Maurice Heights and carried them. They're not afraid of them. Not afraid of them at all. Howell's already begged for permission to attack, has been denied. But now it's Russell's turn. His troops have come up in response to the rival Hoax Brigade. And he's got his skirmishers, the 6th Maine, out here in the sunken road, firing at the Confederates in the large redoubt. And Russell is the kind of guy who believes in personal up-close reconnaissance. He's been up on his skirmish line. He looks at the rebel works and he says, you know what, I think there's not much up there. I think there's just a skirmish line up there. This is a bluff. And so he sends word back to Wright, I want to attack. And at first, writes, no, we can't do that. That's crazy. But then he listens to Russell's plan sent by Curry, and he changes his mind. First off, it's about 40 minutes till dark. That will play in your favor, because by the time you launch this, it's going to be dust. The Confederates won't be able to see well. Their artillery on the south bank will be all but useless, and this will cloak the nature and the size of the assault. Better than that, Russell come up with a pretty clever plan. So we've got a federal skirmish line sealing off the Confederates, but we've got Russell's skirmishers, which is half of the six main, five companies, six main in the second road, right in front of the large redoubt. And what Russell proposes is to bring the other half of the six main as skirmishers over this ridge and down into the sunken road. So the Confederates will see that. Let them. They're going to suppose it's just the transfer of one skirmish line to another. It's sort of routine business, especially right before dark. They'll think this is just you know one, one group of skirmishers relieving another. They'll pay no attention to it. But once the 6th Main is all in that sunken road, it's going to uncap its muskets, fix and ads, and launch an immediate charge on the large redoubt. 
And it's supposed to keep the rebels in the larger doubt busy while the fifth Wisconsin in a second line moving forward in a column of companies, followed by a third line, which is 119 Pennsylvania and the 49th Pennsylvania, which only has four companies at, at this juncture, move forward again in a column of companies. About five minutes between each of those waves to come in and reinforce the attack on the redoubt. And with this fist of men, we'll punch through the rebel line, take the redoubt, move down, take the bridge. And once we have the bridge, the Confederates are cut off and they're going to be wiped out. The daring plan. And the fact that you're going to launch this at dusk makes it all the more viable. And so Wright, thinking things over, changes his mind and gives permission. It is a good plan, but it's interesting that Russell's commanding a division and he's going to attack with a single brigade, his own, which is now under the command of Colonel Peter, Peter Elmaker while he's running the division. So he could, he's like Sedgwick. He's throwing away the vast advantage the Federals have by their numbers. You could throw a whole division against these two Confederate brigades. He's going to come forward with a single brigade, which means that if this thing happens as he plans it, the Federals who are attacking are outnumbered by the defenders. If you had tried this in daylight, this is a failure. Because the Confederates could have seen what was coming at them and they would have shot it to pieces. But the fact that you're doing it at twilight, the Confederates can't see well, what they're going to see are these dense packages of troops coming at them, knowing that there are 26,000 Yankees in front of them. And the Confederates are going to think to themselves, there's no way with 26,000 men, they're going to send 1,100 as, and that's it. So this is probably just the leading edge of wave after wave after wave, you know, of Federals who are going to come pounding down on us. And 900 of us, 2,100 of us, aren't going to stop 26,000 of them. But they would have had a chance if it was just these guys. But it's not. Now, the key players here, Colonel Benjamin Harris of the 6 million, 320 win, 5th Wisconsin, Colonel Thomas Allen, 300 men. <laughs> It's really kind of up to them, but fortunately, it's not got to be just them. Because when Harris gets forward, the other half of the 6th Main joins his two skirmish line, orders his men to fix their bayonets, uncap their muskets. That's important because the last thing you want these guys to do is to stop and shoot. Because once a body of men stops to shoot, you're not moving them again. So if they uncapped the muskets, they can't shoot. they got no choice but to either run away or go all the way in with the bayonet. And as Russell is relating this plan, Captain John Smith, who's commanding 50 skirmishers from the 121st New York Upton's Brigade, who's adjacent to the 6th Maine, uh, gets wind of what's going on. And Upton had given Fish only one order when he sent his skirmishers forward, stay up with the foremost advance. If the six mains going to attack, that becomes the foremost advance. And so, although Fish has no orders to take part in this whatsoever, he says, I guess I'm supposed to attack too. In addition, you're going to get the 20th Main going forward. The 20th Main is in the fifth floor. It's supposed to be on the east side of the railroad, but notice how the railroad makes a little bend. So, when the 20th Main's coverage is advanced and the railroad curve of the 75 
guys from Maine, 50 of them lined up on the west side of the railroad. And Major William Morrell, who's in charge of the 20th Maine Skirmishers, is visiting friends in the 6th Maine. Their neighbors back home. They're just chatting away while the sniping and the artillery barrage is going on. And he's there when Harris comes up and says, all right, guys, this is what we're going to do. And Harris's second command knows Morrell, sees him eavesdropping, and says, did you care to join us? And Morrell says, boy, would I? And he runs over to his men and says, hey, it's the six men next to us. They're going in. Let's go in with them. After all, we're neighbors. We can't go home and say we watched them do it. So you're going to get war units coming forward. And even better than that. So there are 25 men from the 20th Maine who are east of the railroad. And there's, there's a poor sucker up here on the railroad embankment who's the connecting file. He's supposed to keep an eye on what's going on on either side of the uh, railroad embankment. And he sees that part of the 20th main going forward with the 6th main. And so he assumes somebody gave orders that we didn't get. So he shouts down to the other 25 guys from the 20th main. He's the railroad and says, we're supposed to attack. And so they said, okay, we're going forward. And then the two federal regiments whose skirmishers are next to the 20th Maine, the 83rd Pennsylvania, the 44th in uh, New York, and uh, the 16th uh, New Hampshire, they said, oh, the 20th Maine guys are going forward? I guess somebody gave orders we didn't get. We're supposed to attack. None of these people have any orders. They're not supposed to be part of this at all. This is not what Russell had planned, and thank God they didn't know that. Because now this evens the odds. And better than that, it makes all the difference in the world. So over here on the East Bank, you suddenly have the 20th Maine, the 44th New York, the 83rd Pennsylvania, the 16th Michigan, all attacking most of those men uh, on uh, this uh, East Bank of the river. This is uh, Edwin Forbes is here. And he draws all of this. So... There are the Confederate fortifications on the south bank. There's the river. Those are the stone pylons, the burnt ridge. There is the small fort and the ridge. There is the Confederate earthwork east of the embankment. There's the railroad embankment. See how tall it is? And here come the fifth four skirmishers. Here come the fifth four skirmishers. And the 180 men in the 6th Louisiana who had watched an entire division sweep toward them earlier in the day before it inexplicably stopped. See, there's skirmishers coming forward in the twilight, and they make a very natural assumption. That division is behind them coming forward out of the darkness. And there are less than 200 of us, and we're not going to stop. So Colonel Monaghan orders his regiment to move by its left flank to get against the railroad embankment, follow it down to the river, and for the Rappahannock, where the stone pylons are, the river is barely four. And about half of them make it across before the federal skirmishers get to the riverbank and begin to shoot into the backs of the other half of the regiment that's still trying to get over. And as the federals pause to reload, it dawns on them that they're shooting men in the back. And that's, that's a violation of the code. So they begin to yell at these rebels to stop and to turn around and surrender. And about 75 men from the 6th Louisiana, uh, who've thrown away their muskets to get over the river, they're, you know, armpit deep in icy cold water, turn around and begin to come back toward the Federals. At that point, one of their officers, who's been hiding behind one of the pylons, <coughs> steps out in front of them, brandishing his sword and a pistol, and orders them to turn around and go back to the south bank. And 
they turn around, they start to go back to the South Bank. And so the federal troops who reloaded now begin to shoot them down again. And most of them go and hide behind the stone pylons, from which point they will eventually surrender. And about 90, about half of the guys in the 6th Louisiana are going to become prisoners. And right here at the start of the battle, these troops who weren't supposed to have anything to do with it whatsoever have wiped out the entire right flank of the Confederate line. What's going on on the other side of the railroad? Here's the other half of Forbes' drawing. So now we can see there's the small fort, there's the 300 yards of connecting trench up to the large redoubt. There's the 6th main and the, I'm sorry, the 20th main and, uh, and the 6th main going in. The 20th main is going to manage to capture the small fort, one of whose guns had been knocked out of action by federal sharpshooters. Got to keep the 9th Louisiana busy while the 6th main attacks the large redoubt. Now, were the Confederates taken by surprise? No. They saw the Federals coming. Remember, these guys who understand the danger of a twilight assault, they hit the 6th main with three solid volleys. Most of its officers go down, its color bearers go down, and although a few guys get up and jump into the fort, they're immediately driven out, and most of the rest of the 6th main goes to ground in front of the fort, and a bunch of guys yell out that they surrender. And Hayes writes in his report, we stopped the first federal attack. But there are other guys on the 6th Main who don't want to surrender, and so there are some captains and lieutenants who are going, no, no, forward, forward. And the braver souls get up, and they charge the redoubt for a second time. More of them get in. Louisiana Tigers counterattack. There's a vicious hand-to-hand fight. The federals are driven back up onto the parapet. And they're fighting desperately to try and keep this toehold on the larger doubt. And they're all looking to the rear, asking, where's the 5th Wisconsin? It's only supposed to be five minutes behind us. Five minutes have expired. Where are they? Well, they're coming on slow because they got the same orders to go forward with unloaded muskets and only fixed bayonets. And as they began to advance up and over the ridge from which the federal artillery had been firing, the men from Wisconsin have decided that's a really stupid order, <laughs> and we're not going to follow them. And so individual soldiers, while they're on the move, begin to loading their muskets. And one of Russell's aides is behind him, and he's yelling, no, 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 you're supposed to rely on the bayonet. And one of them looks, you know, this guy must think we're a bunch of greenhorns. And more men start to load their muskets, and they're grumbling, and they're and, and Colonel Allen, who's riding in front of them, finally hears all the hubbub, and he turns around and like, what's up? And they say, we're not going in with unloaded muskets. And Allen, recognizing he needs to concede the point, stops the regiment, orders it to halt and load. But the whole time this is happening, the 6th Main is getting further and further in front of the 5th Wisconsin. So the 5th Wisconsin is about five minutes late. And for the guys in the 6th Main trying to keep a toehold on that hard for down, that's a very long five minutes. But the 5th Wisconsin comes up eventually. One wing of it goes forward to reinforce the fight in the large redoubt. The other wing goes forward to help the 20th Main fighting for the stepped trench. And now the Federals have enough men to get inside the fort. And the hand-to-hand fighting here is about as brutal as anything that you will see any place in the rest of the war. Luckily for the Federals, Hayes cannot assemble a force to counterattack. And one of the reasons he can't is Captain John Fish with his 50 skirmishers 
from the 121st New York who decided that he should go in too, manages to hit the sweet spot where the fortifications aren't solid because of the road. And swinging forward in the twilight, his men get atop those very short parapets. They're standing up, looking down on the Confederates who are in very narrow trenches, trenches so narrow that they can't actually point their musket at the guy. They can only shoot almost perpendicular. And the Federals shoot some of them down, and then they're yelling at the rest to surrender. And 157 men from the 8th Louisiana throw down their weapons and give up because they believe this is just the leading edge and overwhelming mass of Federals. And one thing that Federals will not do in most circumstances is throw their lives away. They know the score. They know when they're winning. They know when they're losing. And this is a clearly we are losing. Fish manages to bundle his prisoners off to the rear just in time because the 6th and 57th North Carolina are going to refuse their flank and open fire on him and drive him against the wall of the large redoubt. But fortunately for the Federals, the arrival of the 5th Maine allowed them to take that position in hand-to-hand combat. The 9th Louisiana now pulls back. What's left of the 8th Louisiana pulls back. They become something of a disorganized mob Sorry, uh, here around the bridge. And at that point, the 119th and 49th Pennsylvania arrived to secure what the Federals have won here. And so now this entire side of the Confederate line is gone. Russell belated realized the Confederate position wasn't held by a thin line of skirmishers, that he'd attacked at least as many rebels as he had as sailors. And so he sent word back to Emory Upton to send forward two regiments. Again, an interesting decision here. You could bring forward a whole brigade. You could bring forward the rest of your division. He only asked for two regiments. Upton, more than eager to take part, leaves these two regiments forward. Again, they move up in a column of companies, uh, uh, divisions, uh, and they're supposed to reinforce the fight for the large redoubt. But as they near the battlefield, this position's been taken, so Upton intercepts them and says, okay, I don't need you there anymore. What I need you to do is to pivot to the west and stop the enfilade fire that's coming from the salient in the Confederate line. So Upton very adroitly loots his men into a drainage ditch, deploys them into line, launches an immediate attack, and he overwhelms half of the 54th North Carolina, which had spread itself out to try and occupy some of the trench abandoned by the 6th and the 57th North Carolina when they refused the flank. There's a flurry of hand-to-hand combat here, but the 54th, this half of it, is lost very quickly, and Upton finds himself in position and in possession of this part of the trench. And as he looks off to his right, he sees that the Confederates are disorganized, discombobulated. There's opportunity here, and this is Upton's real contribution. He gets a lot of credit for this because of the whole business of the mule shoe and Spotsylvania and you know, he becomes a big reformer in the army after the war. And people are trying to figure out why Upton's so good. They point to Spotsylvania. And that leads to the deployment at Rappahannock Station because Russell gets killed in 64. Uh, and and you know, he's not around to take credit. Upton gets the credit. He didn't come up with this. He exploits it. He's not the hero here. But he does do a good job. So he can't simply advance down this way. He would have all these Confederates in his rear. He can't attack this way because then he's moving along an arrow front into the TP enemy. So he does something very clever. Oh, and, and this is Alfred Wode's drawing of it. 
Uh, and Wode remembers that Kelly's four, but he's not here. So his drawing of the combat is completely fictional. This is nothing what it looked like. But he did go to the battlefield and draw. And so notice what he tells us here, what he confirms for us here. There's the small fort. There's the large redoubt. There's the pontoon bridge. See how steep that slope is, how wide the river is. And notice that the Confederate earthworks zigzag. So he vindicates our map maker. Now, what Upton does is clever. He sends one battalion of the 121st New York to seize the bridge. He leaves one battalion of the 5th Maine to hold the trenches he's taken. Then he pulls the other two battalions of both regiments out of the works. And he takes them back in front of the Confederate position. He pulls them out and down the slope so that they're out of the line of fire. Pauls them, organizes them, reorganizes them. Orders them to right face so they're on a column of march. He double clicks them across the face of the Confederate line, still down slope, so the Confederates can't see him. They can't hurt him. And once his rear is adjacent to Confederates, he orders his column to move by the left flank, which immediately throws it back into a front while it's still moving. They come forward a few paces. He halts them down slope from the Confederates, but with an easy hearing distance of them. And then he, he plays psychological warrior. He turns to his men and he says, men, there are four lines of battle behind us. And when the rebels open fire, you will lay down and let the other four lines advance over you to sell the enemy position. There's nobody behind Upton's men. Nobody. Except casually that the Confederates don't know that. And the Confederates are expecting wave after wave after wave of Yankees to be coming at them. And so this plays right into those fears. And who's he going up against? The 54th North Carolina. The guys who weren't at Gettysburg, didn't make that twilight attack on July 2nd, who are the most discombobulated by suddenly finding themselves in what is now a night action. It's all but dark. And when Upton's been charged, the 54th collapses completely and immediately. There's hardly no fighting at all. And now Upton finds himself in possession of a lot more of the trench. But now he's spent. He doesn't have enough men to do anything else except gather up the prisoners and herd them to the rear. But at this juncture, Colonel Park Edwards, commander of the 5th Maine, sees some rebel fugitives running off toward the western flank of the rebel fortifications. And Clark, with more gusto and courage than since, decides to grab 12 men and go chasing after them. And after running 20 or 30 yards, he suddenly finds himself standing amid the file posers of the 5th Louisiana, who along with the 7th Louisiana have been visually shooting at federal skirmishers to the front, unaware of everything that's been happening behind them. There's a very stiff wind, so it's blowing all the noise away. Hayes hasn't called for help, so everything behind us must be going swanky. Well, it's not, but nonetheless, Colonel Edwards is in a sticky position. There are a lot of Confederates in front of him. All of his friends are way behind him. They don't know he's there. And what does he do? He bluffs. So he yells out, who's in command of this part of the line? And Captain John Angel, who's in charge of the 125 men in the 5th Louisiana, hears that. He turns around and says, I am, sir. Who wants to know? He says, I'm Colonel Clark Edwards of the 5th Maine, and I demand your surrender. And Angel's kind of like, what? He didn't even know there were any Federals in the works at all. And suddenly he's got this Yankee here demanding to surrender, and he's sort of stunned so he plays for time. Uh, 
Let me consult my officers. And Edward says, I will not give you one second. You will surrender immediately. And Angel still hesitates. And so Edwards lays out the bluff, waves his arm behind him. You see, you see all those men back there? Those are my regiments. If you don't surrender immediately, I'm going to order them to attack. Well, that indistinct mass that Angel can see are all those Confederate prisoners being herded together <laughs> and shoved out of the works. But he doesn't know that. And yet he still hesitates, and so Edwards has one part left, and he throws it on the table, and he yells, 5th Maine, 121st New York, attack, and Angel says, that's it. We're done. Because if they're really there and they attack, my guys are facing the wrong direction, but I'm going to get shot in the back. And when he gives up, then the 7th Louisiana has no choice to give up. And... Edwards winds up with an armful of swords from the Confederate officers <laughs> surrendering to him. It's very strange because the Louisians and the Yankees act like they just finished a hard-fought ball game. They're shaking hands and slapping each other on the back. Probably everybody just grateful to hate we're still alive at the end of this. And that leaves only the 6th and 57th North Carolina under Godwin. And the commander of the 6th North Carolina, Colonel Tate, uh, goes up to Godwin and says, it's all lost. We need to get out of here, cut our way to the bridge and escape. And Godwin, again, with more gallantry than sense, says, I have no orders to return. And so we'll try and retake the position, which, of course, is impossible. And so he stays on the north bank until the Federals swarm down and capture him and his men. Some of the Confederates escape. A good chunk of the 8th and 9th Louisiana managed to run over the bridge before it's too late, but 180 of them? Surrender to three federal privates who run down and fire their muskets in the air and demand to surrender. But again, it's dark. They don't have many Yankees are there. Hayes, most of the officers and couriers are mounted, managed to get away, although their horses are all basically killed uh, in the prospect. Some of the men swim the river. Some of them who try drown because that cold water constricts their blood vessels, their muscles freeze up, and down they go. But Within about 45 minutes, the entire Confederate position is gone. 1,600 prisoners in Fort Hand. Only 38 Confederate dead. That's how quickly the Federals did it. Lee and Early watched it and didn't even know what they were seeing because it's dark. They can't hear it. They see these mobile flashes, but it comes hand-to-hand pretty quickly. And so they believe that this is just a demonstration. After all, the Yankees have spent the whole second half of the day doing nothing of importance. And so Lee writes off to his headquarters believing this plan is working perfectly. And at 8 o'clock, he's going to find out that no, it's not. That he's lost the bridgehead. Meade isn't going to find out that Sedgwick has attacked and taken the bridgehead until about the same time, but it'll be 10 o'clock before enough information comes to him to let him know the real state of affairs. And so Cedric says, I've overrun the bridgehead. I got a bunch of prisoners. I've kept seven battle flags, but I haven't gotten over the river. <clears throat> and there's still Confederates on the other side. And what does that mean for me? Cedric's success has come too late. It's glorious. We wiped out the Louisiana Tigers, for God's sake. It's glorious. It's Operationally, it means nothing because now French is still in the trap and he needs to be reinforced. And you're not sure that you can get over the river in the morning. So overnight, 
The fifth floor and half of the sixth floor are shifted over to Kelly's Ford. And Meade, although he's actually rested the initiative from Arbery, he does not really understand to the extent that he's done that. What does Lee do? He orders his quartermasters to pack everything up. After all, the Confederates were building cabins. They were going to go to winter quarters at Culpeper County. And so the logistics troops are the real heroes for the Confederates here because within just a couple of hours, they load all of the critical equipment, get it in the wagons, and then begin a pell-mell dash for the rapidity. It is confused, chaotic, and elegant, but they're going to get across the river and save the Army of Northern Virginia supplies. Lee gives them till midnight for a head start, and then he begins to pull his infantry back to a defensive position two miles north of Culpeper Courthouse on a ridge line, whose right flank is anchored on Pony Mountain, but whose left flank is completely in the air. If not necessarily a good position, but the Confederate troops who occupied it immediately begin to dig in with no orders, no engineers doing this. This is the first instance of the troops themselves just beginning to dig. This is this is what the war's gotta be like. From this point forward, they'll dig quickly enough and well enough that they could withstand a frontal attack. But if Meade comes forward the next morning vigorously, he can sweep around their left or he can get between them and the Rapidan by skirting around Pony Mountain, which is just a handful of miles away from the river. There is great danger here. And Lee's going to have to make a stand throughout the entire day of November 8th to give his wagons time to get back over the river. Except for Williamsport after Gettysburg, the Army of Northern Virginia has never been in a more perilous position than this. Lee puts Fitzlee's cavalry division on the railroad and Hampton's division along the road leading to Kelly's Ford to slow down the federal advance. He sends Lane's infantry brigade up toward Rixieville to try and guard that flank. But if Meade acts aggressively, if he acts as aggressively, on November 8th, as he has on November 7th, the Army of Northern Virginia is in big trouble. Fortunately, that is not what Meade does. Understandably, he still has to operate on the assumption that he's going to make a big counterattack against French and Kelly's Ford. So he spends the morning getting most of the Army over the river Kelly's Ford, sending the Third Corps up to link up with the 6th, or to attack whatever rebels are still in front of it at Rappahannock Station, it turns out there are none. And so eventually the 6th Corps and the 3rd Corps link up uh, near Fleetwood Heights. The rest of the Army basically forms a protective shield around Kelly's Four. Uh, and on this day, the morning of November 8th, in fact, the duration of November 8th, the Army of the Potomac moves about five or six months. And that's it. Fitz Lee and Hampton managed to stymie the federal cavalry that is sent in front of them from Stevensburg. Uh, it's infantry that comes at them down the ONA, and they stall those guys until they get to Grand New State. Lane, on the other hand, off on toward Rixieville, gives Buford's division of bloody nose. Their sharp little skirmish at the end of the day. But at 3 o'clock, Meade finally has his army online. It's at Brandy Station, where he thought Lee was going to stand and fight, but Lee's not there. Meade hears from Confederate prisoners that 
Lee had retreated across the Rapidan the previous night, and for some reason, Meade decides to believe that. There's no reason to believe that. The Confederates could get that far that quickly. But Meade, remember, didn't think he was going to be able to fight his way over the river. He's managed to do that. He smashed two Confederate brigades and taken a battery of artillery. He had played for limited stakes, and he's happy to cash in his chips and not risk anything else. So at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, November 8, he puts his army into camp. And Lee's vulnerable battle line is just three miles distant. And there's plenty of daylight to fight. And maybe not do much to it except start a fight that would ensnare Lee and make it very difficult for him to disengage and retreat. Or if he did, force him to leave behind a substantial rear guard that the whole army of the Potomac could maul on November 9th, but that is not what he does. And so Lee is left alone for the entire day, and that night he takes his infantry back over the Rapidan, resuming the same positions he had held at the end of July, the same positions he held at the end of September. And by the middle of November, we're right back where we were in the middle of September. Meade has managed to shove Lee back behind the Rapidan into those fortifications and to take up again the same problem we had in September. How do I get at Lee behind the Rapidan River? Stalemate in Virginia, just like there's been stalemate in Virginia essentially since the Battle of Manassas. And what did all that cost the Federals? 96 dead, 409 wounded, and 11 missing, almost all of them from Russell's assaulting division or assaulting brigades. The Confederates, 21 dead, 181 wounded, 1,939 missing. Uh, some of those missing are going to be dead, but not nearly as many as the Confederates thought. They, they said, hey, you know what? I think that was an Alamo at Rappahannock Station. We fought to the death and we inflicted massive Union casualties. Not, not the case. Not the case. And so the Rappahannock Station campaign comes to a quick end. It's a great victory for the Federals, but when think about it for a little bit, and Lincoln and Halleck did, it's a missed opportunity. Pile on missed opportunity, pile on missed opportunities. Sedgwick had two or three opportunities, two or three chances to smash that bridgehead earlier in the day at little cost to allow the Army of the Potomac to unite so that on the morning of November 8th, he would have known he had everybody over the river and could have gone plunging down toward Culpeper after Lee to get the big battle that he said that he wanted. But because the bridgehead fell so late in the day, he doesn't know that, so he doesn't do that. So enormous potential squandered for the Federals, uh, but a nifty little victory to brag about uh, nonetheless. And that is the story of Rappahannock Station. Hampton will make a little raid afterwards and give the Federals a little bit of hard time, but that will essentially bring uh, the campaign to an end. And if anyone has any questions, I would be happy to try and answer them. Any questions? Yes, sir. The uh, French commanding uh, one of the chiefs of the army is seniority. Mm -hmm. he he's the third. He's the third ranking major general in the army of the Potomac, and he's an old regular army guy. 
And so French gets the command. Uh, French had had actually done a fairly decent job uh, in, so far in the war. Uh, he was commanding artillery uh, at Eagle Pass, Texas, when Texas seceded. And rather than surrender his artillery to the secessionists, he took them 300 miles down the Rio Grande to put them on a boat and take them to Key West. And that's gritty. That's gritty. And it marked him. And so he got a brigade, then he got a division. But French was an unlucky fellow. His division got to attack the sunken road at Antietam, and then it got to attack the Stonewall at Fredericksburg, and then it got to try and fend off Stonewall Jackson at Chancellorsville. The man has learned caution, <laughs> and he's learned it for a reason. Uh, and his, his performance at Kelly's Ford is entirely competent. And so if Meade had any doubts that French could handle a poor, Kelly's Ford probably relieved those a little bit. Now, he's going to wind up disappointing Meade in a few weeks at, at my run, not entirely through his own fault. Meade's going to have a part in, in making that happen. Uh, but, but nonetheless, uh, French, French has a disappointment at this point. But he is, he's seen, and that's why he gets a win. Any other questions? Well, there's so few questions, I must have done a really good job. Or I'm terribly confused and bored everybody. So, yes, sir. He, cer he certainly is in August and September uh, of 63. In October, um, he plays it very cautious, plays it carefully. Um, he, could he have beaten Lee if he stood in front and called Temple? Maybe, maybe not. But if he loses, he's in a really bad place, and it could be a calamity. Uh, and it's interesting. One of the things I learned in doing all this is how little the Army of the Potomac knows about a whole lot of Virginia. So as they're retreating the Bristow campaign, they know a lot about the ground right along the Orange and Alexandria, and they know a lot about what's east of it, but just a little west of it, they're clueless. They haven't been there. They have a rough idea. And without more knowledge, Meade says, I don't really have a place where I can make a stand. He also overestimated Lee's strength. He didn't believe Lee would have launched the October offensive if he hadn't been massively reinforced because Meade himself would not launch an offensive unless he had parity or overwhelming numbers uh, to allow him to do so. Uh, so he, he and he admits at the end of the Bristol, he, he writes his wife, Lee out general. He did. Yeah, general. I'll admit it. You know? um, but after that, is Meade still hamstrung? Well, sure. He's given no strategic flexibility at all. And the high command doesn't distrust him, but it doesn't trust him. And they're pretty certain he's not aggressive and he lacks killer instincts. And the mine run campaign is going to confirm that for Although the final decision of the mine run not to launch that attack is it's one of the best decisions he's ever going to make. And maybe the besides Gettysburg, the greatest contribution he's ever going to give to the Union cause because he was told kind of moving beyond our thesis type, but he's told after this that he's expected to launch an offensive against Lee because Grant's 
about to try and break the siege of Chattanooga, and we've got to keep Lee busy so he can't send more troops west. And Stanton tells him, better that you fight and lose a battle, leave 18,000 men on the field, than fight no battle at all. And he gets to Mine Run, and he makes some mistakes there that put him in a position to where he would have to fight a second Fredericksburg and readily lead those 18,000 men on the field in a defeat and knows that he's been told that's better than not fighting at all. And he decides not to fight. And he said, I couldn't do that to my men. And if he hadn't fought that battle, his stock would have gone up in Washington. But what happens to the Army of Potomac? A good chunk of its wreck. The three-year men, having seen a second Fredericksburg, probably say, I'm not re-enlisting. And they go home. And then what happens in 1864? And so Meade was willing to basically destroy his career. He believed he had destroyed his career rather than sacrifice his troops and do the attendant damage to the Union cause. It was really, really difficult to judge Meade. And I myself still kind of struggle with this. He's a little bit of an enigma to me because from a technical standpoint, he's good. He's really good. He understands the strategic situation, the the terrain, the logistics. He's a great army manager. He uh, he's he lacks um, he doesn't lack for boldness. He's certainly brave, but at critical points hesitates. Just for a little bit, for a few hours, a half a day, a day. That's it. But when you're up against Robert E. Lee, that's enough. And you surrender the initiative to the enemy, and he knows what to do with it. Um, Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells said, Meade's a good officer, but he's not a great general. And he would do better as a second in command than the guy in charge. And if you look at the way the war plays out in 1864, when essentially Meade is second in command to Grant, although technically that's not the organization, maybe there's merit to it. Uh, and when Grant finally goes after Lee, when the Petersburg siege finally ends, it's interesting he leaves Meade to poke at the rear of the fleeing Confederates, and he sends Ord and Sheridan and, and the, uh, his, his favorite guys who he believes are more aggressive to go and get in front of him. And probably because he, he, he trusted Meade to do a good job back there, but he probably suspected Meade didn't have the, the oomph to do the other. So, yeah, I think Meade is one of those guys who's forever going to be an enigma to, to honest, you know, historians about, about the Civil War. It's, it's, it's a fine balance. Could he have done better? Yes, but can't we say that about every general? Could Lee have done better here? Could Grant have done better there? Yeah. So, I don't think there's anybody better who commanded the Army of Potomac, though. I will say that. I, I think in Meade's equal or or probably secure to almost all of them. All right, before, before we uh, break for the evening, we just have one more thing to do. I can just ask you to step back, sir. All right, I guess I have four briefly. Last year, during that pandemic, when my duties as president were somewhat limited, I came up with an idea that scored uh, uh, a retube to establish uh, an award, which we call the Bob Award, uh, in honor of our longtime friend, uh, associate at Bars, uh, who was leading tours for this group when some of us weren't alive. 
<laughs> and, and the rest of us were still in grade school. Which is true. So that I uh, appointed a, 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 a committee uh, to put myself on it, and with two other bibliophiles, uh, Bob Girardi as chair, and John Sebastian, who's a present president, uh, to get together and agree upon with the board's approval uh, and worthy recipient of the Bars Award, which tonight we will uh, present the first award. Uh, <coughs> so that it's uh, an honor for uh, me, for us, uh, to do so. Uh, and I'll turn, uh, that's enough for me, I'll turn it over to Bob, who's the chair of the the purpose of this award is to honor outstanding scholarship in the field of Civil War history. It's not just for a single book, it's for a body of work. And we're talking about more recent scholarship, but I'm going to go back in, in, to, the, to the heroes that we grew up reading. This is for new scholarship in un, uncharted territories. And there's no more worthy recipient in the, in the, the opinion of those appointed than you, Mr. Uh, Jeffrey Williams. And so, as the first ever recipient of the Edward Fulton Barber Book Award for Outstanding Scholarship in Civil War History, we award you this plaque. That's Mr. Bars and his Marine Corps World War II uh, uniform and heavy. I've met him on several occasions and shared a podium with him. I, I can't tell you. That's his favorite photo. Yeah, and, and, and what a great honor this is. And the Thank other you. part of the award, in addition to the plaque, is a check for $500. I am extremely humbled, and uh, I'm sure that I'll be keeping very good company as this award comes. A feature of the community going forward. So, thank you, Gary. Thank you for an outstanding. Next year, it might not turn out that way, but I, I believe that you we honor a final student because your work is truly significant for those of us who. Believe in Civil War scholarship. Everyone here comes. Yeah. Sure. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.